I'm Purnima and the Oxford English Dictionary defines multiculturalism as I'm kidding. It's <laughs> Thursday and we're the bitches and truth be told I'm just a little bit terrified of today's podcast because we've set out to talk about multiculturalism which is such an umbrella term that I think for the first time Janisia and I are coming at it from kind of opposite ends and hopefully in the spirit of harmony we'll start from poles apart do a full 360 and meet back up to shake hands. <laughs> you know because I'm a librarian i will use the word multiculturalism as defined by the international federation of library associations because we're that global bitch <laughs> so ifla defines multiculturalism as the coexistence of diverse cultures where culture includes racial religious or cultural groups and is manifested in customary behaviors cultural assumptions and values patterns of thinking and communicative styles now this works really well inside public libraries i can attest for that but how does it actually work in the rest of the world ooh explosive topic <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jadisya and my culture has taught me to be agnostic about cultural identity so that's where we are coming from and I also believe that India is actually best placed to be multicultural and it works for us at home and it works for us abroad and I'm going to make my case for all of this later but let's start by tooting India's cultural horn okay now this is the country whose mother language Sanskrit may have had its origins in faraway Syria actually and we say India invented the zero but there's evidence to show it was actually the Sumerians in Mesopotamia who sort of did and then it traveled to Babylon and then came to India and it was taken from here to the west via the Arabs and speaking of tooting our horns i want you to listen to this this is a very ancient cultural war and worship tradition of south india it's called the kombu pattu and it sounds like this Sounds very traditional. Yes. Now listen to this. It's the same horn, except it's an Irish horn from two millennia before. So my whole thing is, what is culture, man? What is it? Like, let's just talk about multiculturalism <laughs> as a full-on history of what we have now, what we're looking at beyond, and what came before. What are expressions of multiculturalism? You could have it via tattoos. Like, remember when everybody was getting Celtic crosses and nobody asked them why? <laughs> you know like a symbol or like peace but actually it's like an order for dumplings exactly or oh, everyone getting really angry at momos last year <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> not the momos bad momo no momo momo <laughs> you know we are an incredible country it's wild if you want to know the cultural differences between the north and the south in the north there is a saying don't be as useless as a coconut tree <laughs> and like people from kerala are like Slow clap, bitch. <laughs> That's exactly it. Culture is your perspective on things, and it is so flawed and so tiny and so reductive potentially that this conversation is going to go all over the place. Let us start with the Indian Constitution. Go for it. <laughs> so the funnest fact is that the Indian Constitution is known, quite rudely, in my humble opinion, as the bag of borrowings because it takes inspiration from all over the globe, and of course, it borrows. elements from the pre-existing british statutes some of which like section 377 continue to be its horrible remnants and the original was actually modeled on the 1533 buggery act great name no i mean <laughs> <laughs> awesome the british really knew how to name their act bless they had a way with words it's almost as if they invented the english language so the indian preamble has flavors from the american constitution you know we the people and also the french constitution the slogan of liberty equality and fraternity the indian constitution borrows from the erstwhile ussr when it comes to the five year plans it borrows from the japanese constitution especially when it comes to laws governing the supreme court and it also borrows from the 
Weimar Constitution of Germany, from where we've got those delightful emergency rules like suspension of fundamental rights. Doesn't <laughs> and of course, I think a lot of our listeners might know this, but it took like a fuck ton of people to make the constitution of India. I think the number is 298 people to draft and review and finalize it. Although one guy on Quora claims it was a Bengali Marxist guy who did all the work. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we know that all of this was actually done under the leadership of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who did a lion's share of the work. I'm pretty sure that it would have been an absolute nightmare to reconcile nearly 300 opinions, differing points of view, and that odd troll who just likes to say the opposite of what you're saying because that's his thing you know or that guy on the constituent assembly who's always like late for every meeting and then he's like what 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 happened tell me what happened I missed it all those folks who are like obsessed with pointing out spelling mistakes so I think Dr. Ambedkar really achieved a massive thing by leading these people and no wonder it took nearly three years to get the whole thing drafted for anyone who thinks that India is not founded on multicultural values well the constitution itself is so multicultural and the whatsapp group on that would have been crazy (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Ambedkar has left the group okay but to that bag of borrowings bit by the way Dr. Ambedkar said I make no apologies there is nothing to be ashamed of in borrowing it involves no plagiarism and nobody holds any patent rights in the fundamental ideas of a constitution near near I mean the dude was right there were so many countries there was so much going on at that time and so many ideas being propagated and a lot of people have said that our constitution resembles one actually of a multinational federation so these are the things that people have lauded us for like there was a certain amount of legal pluralism put into the constitution in terms of religious family law they also wanted to create affirmative action in the form of quotas across education and legislature that takes care of caste and tribal minorities and these date back to the 19th century not all of them but a lot of them they wanted to establish territorial autonomy for linguistic and tribal groups, which shows that they knew that different cultures express themselves in different ways, not just geographical, not just according to religion. Right. Of course, there were several flaws and there continue to be. But the idea, I think, was very clear that we wanted to preserve and celebrate and sustain this multicultural reality and this identity that we have. And we were inspired by the French Revolution and we were inspired by the freshly baked ideals of the US and stuff like that. But my favorite borrowing was from the Irish Constitution, like the idea of directive principles, a clear claim that they want to focus on creating a social and economic situation where your citizens thrive and they fare well. It's not like these laws, those laws. They're saying that this is what our ideals are and the methods of these will change. The ways we manifest these things will change. And if our culture is one of upholding the well-being of our citizens our traditions to maintain this culture also continue to evolve or devolve as we are seeing and I suspect that we confuse culture with tradition and with heritage and I'll explain with a very I think excellent example of this okay this is from my hood there was a young man and his name was well actually I'm not going to say his name because it's pretty common I'm sure someone's going to insult it so let's say his name was Bartholomew it wasn't (laughs) but let's see now Bartholomew lived in a bungalow on the corner of a busy crossroads and one day his friends wanted to go out but his dad was like no they were parked outside on their bikes so they started revving and they started Bartholomew Bozard, Bartholomew Bozard. <laughs> and they rode off. They thought it was damn funny. This was in the late 80s, early 90s, and there was no internet and all that. So they were bored and all this was damn funny. It was like trolling, but whatever. So then every time they ride past, they used to shout past his bungalow, eh, Bartholomew Bozard. Once or twice, they were with other friends who didn't really want from their circle. And of course, by now it was muscle memory. So they passed the bungalow and were like, eh, Bartholomew Bozard. <laughs> then two or three guys who had no idea who Bartholomew was, may have not known what a Bosar was, they started shouting, eh, Bartholomew Bosar. So what happened was, this became a daily ritual. Somebody <laughs> or the other would shout out Bartholomew Bosar because they thought that was a thing to do at the crossroads. By that time, Bartholomew grew up and he went to the States and all, but younger people were also going up and down shouting Bartholomew Bosar. The initial part of the story is the culture of Bartholomew and his friends. That's his culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And strangers start calling out to him, that becomes tradition. And when the next generation of youngsters do it, that's heritage. And the only reason it stopped was because that bungalow got broken and now there's a ghost gym there. <laughs> Things change, guys. But culture is the idea. Tradition is the action. 
and heritage is what you take from it and what you are allowed to keep what you find central to this identity of yours and i think our experiences of multiculturalism or monocultures or whatever they are very very personal even if you want to extrapolate them to the suburb or the state where you live what your school contemporaries were like there are no right or wrong answers here but just to explore this idea of culture and multiculturalism in india as we see it assuming you didn't shout outside the bungalow bartholomew bosart but <laughs> tell me about your unique experience <laughs> I mean, I really feel bad for Bartholomew. I wonder where he is now and he's if he's fine, okay. He's fine. <laughs> but a lot of what we describe as heritage or what has been passed down, I think we unmindfully also imbibe it into our systems because it comes at us at such a young age. And growing up in the 80s and 90s, I very distinctly remember that we were all being marketed this idea of unity in diversity. Ek chidiya, anek chidiya. India equals unity in diversity. You know, that was the party line. And especially when you put things in song, you know, when you're at that age, you swallow it as truth without questioning. But I also come from a great deal of Brahminical privilege. And there was always a mismatch between this idea of unity and in diversity that I was hearing and what I was seeing in my life you know I was in a school where only well-off and culturally privileged people go and friends who all looked the same there was really no questioning of why the people who work in our homes are treated differently why they aren't allowed to express their culture or humanity and we believed I believed that this was multiculturalism in action why because things like you know school annual function you'll have that one dance piece where one kid is doing the bhangra and one (laughs) kid is doing one bharatnatyam and if the teacher is feeling extra generous then one poor kid in the corner is doing Manipuri dance and (laughs) you know that's all the myth and it makes for a really weird split personality where what you've been marketed is at odds with your experience but you're still continuing to buy into the marketing and it takes a lot of growing up to look around and say hey why don't I have friends who uh, don't look like me or who say different things and believe different things and dress differently I think I was 35 when I actually realized this and that's way 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 too old to realize that the myth of multiculturalism as it's been sold to you, doesn't actually exist and you're really living inside a bubble. So I've had a completely different experience. Let me just tell you about my ethnic identity for a minute. I'm from a community of farmers and fishermen who have lived on the islands of Bombay since before everybody. We are like Aboriginal to this place. This is where we belong. We call ourselves East Indians. (laughs) It's very embarrassing because we call ourselves East Indians after the East India Company because lots of my ancestors worked for them. You know, they were like, Obrigado, Portuguese buggers. Now we are company men. (laughs) Make us rich. (laughs) Right? We also wanted to differentiate themselves from other Christian immigrants and other immigrants who were coming into Bombay at that time as Bombay started to grow. So you stand behind and tell me, you can tell the difference between a Mangalorean Catholic, a Kerala Catholic and an Eastern Catholic. But no, 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 no. the Eastern is like, oh my God, we are so different. Please call us Eastern. (laughs) That was my community identity. I don't even think I was very conscious of it because... I grew up in Oman. There, you know, no one even knows what state of the country you're from. I played alongside white, yellow, brown kids. Mm. And lots of people there, they come from different parts of the world. And today, if you look at people who live abroad, maybe in, say, in Southeast Asia, for example, they believe that all nannies come from the Philippines. All laborers come from South Asia. Mm. But we were very lucky because, like, for example, we had Filipino neighbors and they were engineers. Our Pakistani neighbors, they worked in the UN, you know, mm. and our rich Gujarati friends sat on the ground and served dinner and thalis and they ate with their hands. And nobody knew anything about you except that you were Indian. Mm. They didn't ask you whether you were from what suburb or what your caste was. When I came to India, I realized that it's not like that everywhere else. Here, people will be like, oh, you're Catholic. But Catholicism is not an ethnic identity. Religion is Mm. not an ethnic identity. Even today, people will be like, oh, your husband is Sindhi, you're Catholic. That is the zoom out they look at me with. So my cultural identity actually is, you know, rooted in kind of my community here, like that I've come to here. So I have a very zoom out attitude to culture. Working in London once, very early, like when I was very young, Young, very excited to be in London for the first time and somebody shouted hey Paki to me and I was like yeah that's what I am 
welcome to england <laughs> hello what the coin is your back dick okay so we have so much movement in the country because today we are the largest immigrant population in the world there are like millions of indian people who have either left permanently or they work they are nris or they are pios or whatever it is and they contribute in so many ways they contribute economically and i'm sure culturally they have started contributing politically like please google list of foreign politicians of indian origin it's not just the war of the flowers aka tulsi versus kamla we are <laughs> represented in government around yeah. the world our remittances to india from our international community was 68.9 billion dollars and our remittances out was 5.7 billion dollars mm-hmm. <laughs> so wow. you know every time an indian succeeds abroad we like thumping our chests like recently bhavya lal mm-hmm. has been appointed acting chief of staff at nasa like she's the first indian american wow. to hold a leadership position in this us space agency mm-hmm. i mean that's incredible you know mm. and there's also there's also been a lot of like jokes that oh you know uh, indians are democrat until they get their green cards and then they become republicans but that <laughs> no it's true it's amazing it's true, it's true. yeah no but there's research to show that about 80% of the indian diaspora in the us despite being in, in the republican paradigm in terms of doing well and their culture of assimilation education whatever they actually vote democrat because they respond to the ideologies that take into account minorities i don't know but that kind of makes me all warm and fuzzy <laughs> like, but again you know. there's a split personality that comes in even here because while this is true it is all also true you know like how there was this explosive story that broke a couple of months ago talking about casteism in silicon valley where yeah. the indians who travel from here to there you know they will cross the oceans go across the world but they'll perpetuate the same you know aggressions microaggressions and violence in in that space yeah. and that's really at odds also with what you're saying but what you're saying is also true so the, there's yeah. like these two very very i don't want to use the word schizoid because you know it's it's wrong to equate mental health issues with this but it really is like a split it's a very bizarre sort of split i think that there are different ways the diaspora moved a lot of people after partition for example who left the country they landed up in africa or they landed up in lanky right. and stuff like that you know we know more about some we know less about the others a lot of them found it safer to move into like these ghettos kind of communities for whatever reason maybe they missed home maybe they didn't have the kind of language skills so we you know you hear their stories are different from the people who went by the education route or yeah. you know went via some relative who was living there and helped them found to find a job so these are, it is i mean obviously it's extremely faceted i yeah. think they shouldn't be taking the caste system with them but i don't think that even if they do that they'll last very long mm. i think that the key to succeeding and being amazing is you will embrace things look at kamla harris she's very very rooted in as much as she can be in her indian culture as well as the culture of her father and mm. i think those are the stories that are success stories i don't know whether if you are being a casteist dick somewhere else beyond the point someone will get really pissed off with you and be like hey fuck up from here and it would in fact like be really interesting to know you know from the outside this story of assimilation into a different culture looks a certain way to someone like me whose life has been the opposite of that actually but it's actually i'd be really curious to know what happens inside that experience when you are the kamala or you are that indian who has moved to a different culture yeah and how it all starts like what's the kind of mentality that kind of sets you off on that path and yeah. we decided to talk to juhi pandey and yoshi yes as we wrestle with identity politics at home the history of the diaspora's political influence on what's happening in the world before and today the fact that we are the world's leading country of international migrants i had some deep thoughts about how adaptable and accepting i thought we were so i thought we would look at the numbers and the stats and the research and we did but then i wanted to talk to someone who has lived one of the most geographically nomadic culturally dynamic lives while also being the most suited person i know juhi pandey is someone who is as comfortable in front of a film or television camera as she is running helter skelter behind a toddler she's written books and she makes soap and she makes trouble and she sends memes and she suggests great books and she really feels the yoga she has lived around the country and across the world and in one of her many avatars she set up a digital publication company that focused on personal histories which are tied to a place 
the idea being that the story of you the intimate story and where you live is the best way for somebody else to get to know a local culture and if anyone has a perspective on multiculturalism i think it's her so juhi pande welcome to thursday bitches hi guys i want to say that that's the best introduction i've ever got really? and uh, yeah i'm almost tearing up uh, maybe yep. it's the hormones but but <laughs> Oh, I'm just going to have you guys talk about me anytime I need an introduction. Thank you for having me. It's I I just want to say it's about bloody time because I've been listening to your uh, podcast and I'm very jealous of all the guests because uh, it's a really fun podcast. It's really rooted in so many different subjects and it's in depth and yeah, I know this sounds like a mutual admiration society but I I'm a big fan of Thursday bitches and and I'm happy to be here. Yes. Well Thank done. you. Let's start with your personal background. Your from an uh, from an armed forces background and i know that you've lived in really tiny little villages and big cities also your ethnic identity is very rooted in a particular state in a particular community so can you just give us a little bit of a background about how it starts with the big deep roots in india this is actually a big question for me because i grew up all over india my father was a fighter pilot so his base was changing every 10 months every 15 months so i changed 10 schools i've lived in the north east west south of the of the country in tiny air force bases for us going to lucknow was like going to Lucknow is where my nana nani and my dada dadi lived. It was like going to this mega city. You know, we could get ice cream, like we could get uh, candy that we wouldn't get at air force stations. It was just, it was phenomenal. So you can imagine how tiny the places were that I was staying in, because air force stations are also a little separate from the town that they are based in. So it's a really, really tiny experience living on the bases, but at the same time, pretty expansive because you pe- meet people from everywhere. So that was my life uh, from the time I was, you know, an infant till I was 15 years old. And my ethnic roots go back. I don't know. My uh, my dad is from Nainital. He's a very proud Bahari. He, given that he only went to Nainital like six years ago for the first time, uh, <laughs> the pride was pretty. Uh, it was mocked constantly by the rest of us. But he asked Bahari's, you know, asked people, we are out here from the mountains and all. Anyway, he finally made it, and it's beautiful and it's gorgeous and it's all of that. My mum's side of the family, there are a bunch of how do I say gypsies. My nani was a surgeon. She was an OBGYN, and her mother was from some part. in Pakistan and they were outliers like they didn't believe in religion they didn't believe in the caste system and i'm talking about you know people in the 30s and 40s 1930s and 40s so they were really really liberated and that sort of percolated to my mum and that's percolated to me and it's just yes i i belong to up i've never really lived there except for 10 months in alhabad where my dad was based there my hindi is very good my accent is very very rooted in northern india i i don't really belong to any one place i want to belong to bombay so i just say i'm from bombay because yeah. it's the only place that i live longest in when you were growing up outside of the army uh, traditions i want to ask you first about personal traditions Was there anything in your family that they harked back to that would be resonant with you know a cultural thing rather than your own individual culture? You know, on this day we do this or we celebrate this festival. I'll just begin by saying that I was brought up agnostic. We were born Hindus, but we didn't have a mandir at home. My nani had a mandir, but it had everything from Tara, who is the Buddhist deity, to Jesus Christ. The first. religious book i ever got was a graphic novel of the bible which my nani gave me right and she was born on the 25th of december so obviously she felt like she was jesus's homeboy you know one of those so i was brought up very agnostic from both sides of my family we didn't have any culture that we sort of wrapped ourselves around but my mom's going to hate me for saying this my mom has like She's done things like, oh, it's Dhanteras, so we have to buy a little bit of silver or gold, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or, yeah. or you know, it's Diwali, so we will, <laughs> we will, whatever bhagwans we can find around the house, little idols, we put them around and fraudulently sing the Hanuman Chalisa, which no one knows. Right? <laughs> and my mother will sing the first couple of lines. She's gonna, she's really gonna. I hope she doesn't listen to this. She will sing the first two lines, which she knows, and then everything is a. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is exactly that's like fraud. my mom, by the way. That's, so that that fraud behavior is done, and then we all have a you know, we have a drink, and then we we hang out. Like it, there's nothing rooted in pure culture. Like Christmas was a big deal. We always got Christmas gifts. Diwali was kind of a big deal. It's just like it's related to food and greed. Like you know, are we going to get gifts? Like are we going to buy something? <laughs> So that was primarily the culture we grew up. Actually, I think most of the efforts was like this. Everyone celebrated everything together. It wasn't really that religious. I the thing is, I like the idea of culture and I embrace it. But all my friends and family know that I'm militantly atheist. I do not believe in religion. It's like a hybrid version of my parents' thought and my grandparents' thought. So there was no culture as such. But yeah, I've continued to celebrate Diwali and Christmas with the same sham behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a Jewish wedding, and my husband's not Jewish, but his cousin is, and he's a rabbi. So we figured that somebody who really believes in religion. So why shouldn't that person officiate our wedding? Because it makes sense. So we had a Jewish wedding. My father's like, I'm paying for this. Which one of us is Jewish? So what's going on? <laughs> It was one of those things. Yeah, we did the whole master of breaking the glass and all of that. It was fantastic. I think we're like a magpie. We take all the shiny stuff and put it in our nest, and that's it. Like this is our culture. Have you ever missed it? Have you, like especially when you see you know other people maybe growing up, you know, kids in your class or later on kids who were more rooted in their culture. Did you ever feel like you missed that? I don't think so. I mean, no, I'll be honest. No, I didn't because I think it's a very reductive form of culture that we follow. We take the best fun bits and we it's a very hedonistic way of going through culture, but it's all I've known. It's very easy in India to pigeonhole people. Oh, this one is from yeah. that community, therefore blah blah blah. We and it kind of saves a lot of time because we meet a lot of people because we're so population yeah. dense. But have you ever had an incident where Somebody looked at you and said, hey, one minute, that's not how a Brahmin girl should behave or that's not how somebody from UP does it. It's happened to me constantly. See, we lived in different parts of the country and we never went to the schools that were on the Air Force campus. Like, my parents tried their best to put us in the best possible schools in that particular town, right? So okay. I've been to like... CBSC schools, ICSC schools, convents, you know, co-eds. I've been to government schools. I've been to a KV. So I've got the full lowdown of schools in the country. And obviously you meet every sort of person. And from the time I can remember, I was picked on. Like I remember being in class four. We were studying in a school in Uti, in a place called Wellington, which is close to Uti. Mm. And my mother had made a roast beef previous day and she gave me a roast beef sandwich for my tiffin. So I was sitting next to this guy called Jayaram Ramana, who's obviously clearly very charming. <laughs> And you remember his name. <laughs> My name is Juhi Pandey. So obviously, I'm also clearly very Brahmin and very Hindu because of my name. And I'm eating the sandwich. And this guy asked me, what, well, you know, what, what sandwich is that? And I was like, oh, it's a roast beef sandwich. It was probably our first month in that school. I got shamed so badly. Like, what is wrong with you? You're a bad Hindu. How dare you eat beef? And I was brought to tears. I mean, I was only nine years old. I remember going back home to my mom and being so upset and telling her, you can't give me this sort of food. And I don't remember my words, but obviously I was very upset. And my mother turned around and said, this is the food you're going to get. If anybody makes fun of you, you just hit them. <laughs> oh my God. And I've always had a slightly aggressive personality because we, we just had to have this patina of toughness because you move so much. And honestly, kids are very cruel. They just mm. start getting cruel from age five and it doesn't stop for a lot of them. I just had to be tough. And I was like, no, this is what I'm eating. Shove it. You know, this is this is who I am. You don't want to talk to me. Don't talk to me. There were many times. Oh, you don't look Hindu. Means? <laughs> I was like, shorts. Yeah, so we've I'm, all had the you don't look whatever you're supposed then to Then you move abroad and then they, they say things like, oh, so your parents allow marriage with foreigner? Like these, these sort of things still happen. I'm 41 years old should i just give you the lowdown of my lineage <laughs> my favorite one is do you eat a lot of curry at home <laughs> it's like what yeah. is curry? <laughs> you know you go to the supermarkets and you see curry powder i'm like what is yeah. it what is what it is what curry <laughs> curry which curry like curry is an adjective is a process it's yeah. not a recipe <laughs> so uh, i had to uh, control my identity a lot of the time and it's tough especially when you're a kid because you don't fit in. Everybody else is sort of boxed into certain cultures, religions, ideas, thoughts. And when you're a mongrel, when your ideas and your culture is like a patchwork quilt, then you really don't fit in and you have to, you have to hold on to that. Instead of saying, 
fine, I'll be this today and I'll be that today. It's easy to do either, yeah. but you just have to choose. Once you leave the constraints of the pigeonholing, this is your surname, this is what you must eat. Yeah. I could be wrong, but all the army kids and the armed forces kids that I have met have always been beautifully adaptable everywhere yeah. they go. A lot of us tend to have very similar friends, roughly the same age, roughly the same socioeconomic, whatever. Uh, armed forces children, you go to a party there, there's just all kinds of folk there and it's really yeah. fascinated me. Yeah. Do you feel I- that that helps? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think the lifestyle, it just pushes you in the deep end of the pool every single year or every time you move. If you want to stand your ground and be rooted to a certain thought or idea, you won't survive. All you'll be doing is fighting. So you have to be adaptable. You have to be amicable. And sometimes that also becomes like a false first version of you right oh she's he is very fun to be around like I actually like spending time on by myself alone a lot and some of my closest friends know this but a lot of people think that oh Juhi just likes to go out and she likes to party yeah sometimes it's like classical conditioning it kicks in every time you step out right so uh, everyone just assumes that oh you're you're an extrovert no you're an ambivert and it's okay but you have to be adaptable. You have no choice. And I think that's fantastic, especially if you want to roam around the world, if you want to explore different things, if you want to be a little bit fearless, if you want to have a slightly reckless attitude towards life, which I think can be a lot of fun. I mean, it can cause a lot of heartache, but it can also be a lot of fun. Yeah, and these skills, yeah. you hone them because you need to survive. But actually what happens is you don't realize that actually the same skills help you thrive once you are an adult and you're making yeah. your own decisions. You have far more pools to pick from rather than the same pool. And I could be wrong, but I think we used to have a very outward looking attitude maybe in the 70s and the 80s increasingly I'm beginning to feel that people are very worried that you lose something in this whole act of being adaptable and uh, to be honest this is my conundrum I don't know whether what you lose Mm. is really going to help you as an adult I can see the difference now, even in cities like Bombay, uh, when I moved to Bombay in 1998, Bombay was a completely different animal. I felt free because I was coming from Delhi. And Delhi was a its a slightly tight city. I don't know how to explain it. Both cities have sort of spiraled downwards. Don't get me wrong. I, I love both cities. I thrived in both cities. Yeah. But Delhi felt a little bit claustrophobic because I had to be and uh, look and feel a certain way. It was a little Mm -hmm. bit dangerous even back in the mid to late 90s for women. Then I moved to Bombay and it was just this breath escaped my body because I felt free. I felt light. Bombay allowed me to be me. Women were strong. Women were working. Women were taking trains. I loved it. And over time, I don't know if I was jaded or I think that's not the case. But I think that the city sort of spiraled into. We all know there's a lot of hate going on and people are sticking religions and the people are sticking to their culture and they're you know boxing themselves into these little compartments and there's a lot of hate in the country right now and it's only getting worse and things were way easier in the 70s 80s 90s i would even go further enough to say that even when like when my mom was growing up like her yeah. because her parents were so emancipated so liberated my mom also had a completely different outlook towards life you're not allowed that anymore people are really like you said janice uh, people are clinging on to identity and this whole adaptability is frowned upon what do you want to hold on to is my question like my thing is that the more you hold on to it the smaller it becomes it's like sand isn't it you're not doing your kids any favors you're not doing yourself any favors but the whole idea is to balance where you come from and where you're going like can you tell us a little bit about this man you married who's not jewish (laughs) michael my jewish friend (laughs) so around the time that i stopped moving i lived in sydney for a few months and then kind of in bombay Around the time I stuck to Bombay is when Mike started to travel. So he grew up in Boston. And I think by the time he was 19, he moved to China to finish his schooling. But then he got a job and then he shunted between Japan and bits of China and Hong Kong and Singapore. Then he went to New York to finish his schooling, came to India, moved to London. So he's just been on the run or on the road you know, for half his life. He's quite remarkable. He's half Chinese and half American in his ethnicity his mom's of course third generation Chinese doctor from Boston and he's one of those people who adapt this is the fun part wherever he goes 
including accents. <laughs> when, when Mike sounds more Indian than me, and this is usually when we're sitting in an auto in Bombay, and when he says, Aage se left, Aage se right, when he says it, it really sounds like, it doesn't sound like him. And everyone's always talking about how Mike really like immediately changes. It's great to have that sort of partner who's just willing to go anywhere, eat anything. He's really adaptable. He's not at all stuck to an idea of a food or a culture or people. He's willing to experience it all. And I think that's our common ground is we're not attached to a place. We're not attached to an idea. We want to travel a lot. We want to hang out with a lot of interesting people. This is going to get very philosophical, but you have one life. Mm. You can keep following one route forever and like, this is me, this is me, this is me. Or you can just experience a bit of it all. It's fun. It's also a great way to widen your horizons. You will lose some things in that exchange. And you've got to figure out what you value more. Your children are half Indian, one quarter Chinese and one quarter American. You have all sorts of cultural and religious influences in your world. And races, food. I was talking to my uh, kids the other day because, you know, I'm East Indian, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And my husband is Sindhi. I used to have this lovely Punjabi friend whose mother, whenever she she came back from a shoot would make her rajma chawal and they would both have tears in their eyes and all of that and I loved rajma chawal but I was thinking what's my kids rajma chawal what will your kids rajma chawal for want of a better example you can tell I'm a writer <laughs> what will that be in terms of food in terms of culture are you giving her a mindset but first I want to ask you what did your kids answer there's this particular kind of chicken curry that my family makes which they quite like but it's weird because we make that once in three months you know so I think they were just kissing my ass motherfucker <laughs> so I would say my rajma chawal is my mum's meat curry chawal that we used to have every Sunday it's just I don't want to make it at home because I just want her to make it for me I don't know where she got it from who she learned it from it's just fantastic but for Skanda my daughter I don't know we eat a mix of and I know this is going to sound really like rooted in our ethnicities but it's just because the food is very rich in flavour we eat Indian food and we eat Chinese food yeah but that's correct those are the <laughs> kind of food that should be eaten and it's not just Chinese food it's Shezwanese food. So I've got all these cookbooks on Shezwanese food because if we're not ordering in, I am spending a serious amount of time trying to figure out, you know, how to make a fuchsia dandap. My daughter's vegetarian until she can decide whether she wants to eat meat or not. We, of course, eat meat and we're depriving her of all the fun and joy. She likes, you know, those pickled green beans with rice, which is very Shezwanese. She also likes rajma chawal, which I've started to make, chole chawal. She'll eat anything we give her. And I think she will not really, really know what good Italian cuisine or French cuisine is till she grows up and starts going to restaurants on her own. Because when we step out, we actually just go to Indian restaurants or Chinese restaurants or burger. But the culture that she's growing up with, I'm not worried about that. There'll be a lot for her to take in. We live in a neighborhood called Hackney in London, which is lots of people like us. Lots of people from different parts of the world who've made babies who are all sorts of colors and shapes and sizes. It, that's just how it is. I, I'm not too worried about that. Like I said, I just wanted to eat very flavorful food and never <laughs> just take that salt and pepper, our seasoning or our spices. <laughs> So that's my primary concern. Uh, since you've grown up with this hybrid childhood, you were at a very early age exposed to the fact that there are all kinds of cultures, you know, in this country. And yeah. so has your partner. And now your daughter's growing up similarly. And from whatever I've talked to Janissia about, it seems like there was there's some similarity there. But yeah. many of us have not had those early experiences yeah. where we knew that there was a diversity uh, yeah. out there or that we shouldn't be afraid of others or other cultures we had to learn that and some of us and too many of us right now in this country yeah. are not functioning from that place so yeah. if I were to ask you in this very banal listicle sort of way like what what would be your pro tip to be a little bit more open to other cultures that's actually a really a tough one to answer because, you know, I've lived it my whole life. So for me, try and see it from a person's point of view who's actually not had that experience till much later or is choosing that experience now after having lived a slightly rooted existence. Honestly, I would say it's a lot of, I'm, I'm sorry if this sounds ambiguous, but it's a lot of letting go. It's a lot of self-awareness and it's a lot of knowing that it might not always be good 
but eventually it'll be worth it. So I'll break it down. Letting go of ideas, conceptions, thoughts that make us who we are. This is good, this is bad. Because if you loosen those grips a little bit, you can allow more in. For example, Jayaram, see, obviously, this is like an issue which has carried on from my life. <laughs> He sent me a Facebook request, by the way, four years ago. And I was like, no, you cannot be my friend because I've harbored this hate all this while. So if Jayaram Ramana had just chilled out and let me eat what I wanted to eat, I wouldn't have been talking about it on this podcast. And everyone would be happy and we'd be Facebook friends. Get it? So <laughs> I feel that letting go is a big, big part of it. Obviously, know who you are, but like really let go of some ideas. You know, is this possible? Is this a lot? It's harder when you've grown grown up with these ideas really really cemented in your brain self-awareness like knowing how you will react to certain things and trying maybe to hold back a very reductive example would be eating something that you really think you're going to hate like you know you're going to hate it but you still want to give it a shot what is the really off percent like one percent chance that you might enjoy right and if that happens great so it's like I'm giving really, because it's an ambiguous thing I've said, I have to give very sort of basic examples. The Thai people, when they don't like something to eat, they say, I don't know how to eat this, which is such Mm. a beautiful way of talking about an idea. Like, mukholo, mukholo, zara mukholo, abhi batate. And that's it. I think knowing that you might have some bad experiences, right? Uh, Not everything is going to be fantastic. Oh, I'm so open-minded. Oh, I want to experience all these cultures. Oh, it's going to be amazing. I've gone on so many trips where I've just been like, this is it. This is the bomb. I'm going to have the best time. And, you know, four times out of ten, it's been really shit. Like, it's been really, really bad. I've been scarred (laughs) because I just didn't like any of the experiences. But those are the ones you talk about the most and you did it so it's in your fabric and you've experienced that and you can discuss it and talk about it and maybe the next time you go you'll be a little more aware like when you have to embrace different ideas and cultures etc you will get hurt you will not like it you will be uncomfortable and that's okay because it's still informing you of something that is not yours and I think that's key and also, I think like letting go, uh, even if bad shit happens, doesn't yeah. mean that you're losing yourself. You know, I think that's where we all get caught up because we're so afraid that if we're too open, we will lose a part of ourselves. Exactly. But I don't think that's how it plays out. Especially if you're older, you see, because you are already that person. Every year we become more of the person that we were meant to be if we allow ourselves. And right. so the later you do it, the more you should be confident that really, even if I fling myself like a slingshot far away, I'll come back like a boomerang because this is who I am. Yeah. Unless I, I completely fall in love with that idea or completely. Sure, why not? That's the whole experience. I also think admitting that you didn't have all the information at a certain age. The trouble with imposed cultures is they're telling you that this is all the information there is. And I've said this before, but somebody likened culture and tradition to a fire rather than a building. The building stays the same, but if you have to have different things to feed a fire. If you look at culture, Indian culture, as a fire, then every generation we add things to it and we lose some things from it and that's okay. It's not going to change who you are. The world's not going to come to an end. Your children are not all going to burn some fire of Abrahamic hell or whatever. <laughs> when Purnima and I started this podcast, one of the first things we talked about was Karvachot. Do we Are we all on the same plane with Karvachot? I so, think so. <laughs> I don't feel like... I I can fast for my husband one day and then threaten to kill him the next day. I think that would make me a bit psycho. But it's not my inherited culture. So I kind of took a step back and said, you know what? I'm not going to judge you. You want to do I, it? That's I fine. think I think Karma Chauth is one of those things which can be judged from any culture. No matter where you're from. <laughs> You should judge it and judge it hard. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just saying that yeah. you don't become a fully formed person at any point of time. Because the moment you do, actually, you're petrified. You're no longer moving. You're a fossil, culturally. All culture percolates from religion. As an atheist, I'm allowed my views. And I think, you know, this is just a disclaimer. I feel that, like, there's a science of just living on this planet, the biology of it, the connectedness of it, the, the spirituality of it. I, I believe there's something higher than us. I just don't feel like it has a name or a face or an idea identity and I just find some rituals which are especially oppressive of women where the patriarchy is so internalized that you actually think you're doing a good thing I cannot imagine starving myself for anyone why is there a ritual for men like this eat the food it's great you know (laughs) 
It's Chinese or Indian. What the hell? Sometimes Vietnamese, if you're feeling, you know, crazy. What is going on? Even when you have a child, there are customs involved that you should eat tilka laddu, you should not eat diska. It's just... And random people tell you the most personal things like, eat this, your milk production will increase. You're discussing it openly in front of other people. It's, so like, it's, it's yeah, Everyone's sitting in the table and your dad is there and they're talking about your working booth. Yeah, Hello. Look, I'm sure a lot of this is rooted in science. Yes, you, you, you eat this and something happens to your body etc but it just becomes too ritualistic I went to a friend's wedding I was telling Purnima about it and they had a Gurdwara a church a mosque and a mm. temple and they were all identical buildings and inside they were like very very sparsely decorated with yeah. some of the stuff that you see in these religious uh, places and I was pretty blown away because I was just like you know that's what religion actually is actually it is a bear box that you yeah. put your chingamaring on and that's yours now maybe I was also a bit naive at that time but I was very impressed and I didn't stop to think that someone might feel that there wasn't enough that they would miss their very very intense maximalist temple from home yeah. and you know the army is one of those things like large educational institutions in this country to some extent also which kind of pushes many different cultures through the same meat grinder and you get spat out at the end with just a few traces of what you were yeah, I'm interested yeah. to know what your feelings about that was when you were growing up you know we just respected every religion every festival every every cultural aspect was all celebrated with the same enthusiasm. I remember one of my favorite Diwali's and favorite Christmases was in Assam in a place called Tezpur, which was an Air Force base. Basically, we all did what we had to at home and all the kids got on their bikes at around six o'clock and then we went to the stadium. And in the stadium, these guys got flare guns. The tamasha that you have in the evening for Diwali was flare guns, which is really fantastic especially for 1992 <laughs> i remember we were all in our sweaters and our little like you know sunday best dresses and whatnot and it was so much fun because all the kids were hanging out together it's so safe that you can just be out on your bicycle and be fine till about midnight and then we all sort of went to the air force mess where everyone had a great meal etc and the same thing would happen for christmas right we all sang in the choir etc what it does is it instills a sense of equality for any culture there was no collective puja or any collective like going to a church and praying you know none of that yeah. happened so they did keep the religion bit out of it and I think that's why I am the way I am because I just took that bit separating religion and culture as much as you can is probably an easier way about it for me but like not for a lot of people I have some friends who are very religious and for them it's just not an option that's their belief the same way I don't understand how someone would be so rooted to it it's it's a similar vein right Indians are really good <laughs> at many things including cultural appropriation you know for example they will happily have Halloween parties yeah with it's like Thanksgiving Thanksgiving but <laughs> 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 the green card holders yeah, Juhi, come on. the whole thing with the Hindu weddings is they kind of um, boring <laughs> I had a Hindu wedding I had an Arya Samaj wedding I saw four guests asleep it was a 40 minute yeah. ceremony so what they started doing and I think you should all thank Kejo for that you know this whole idea of the Sangeet and all gives you a chance to have a massive party yeah. and you know all your friends and just have a rager but yeah. then it became a thing to have a theme for the Sangeet because it wasn't good enough to just have a big party yeah. so there were these stories of Russian swimmers being flown in and made to swim through tanks and all of that and then there was this huge thing called the white wedding theme where the girl would dress in a white dress and the guy would dress in a tuxedo and they'd have a fake ceremony and everything and you know what first I was like ew but then I just yeah. thought okay whatever go for it dude come on everything is a motif we have that in us so why can't we just get along better you know we could I feel like the generation after us like our children that generation is so much more aware and less rooted than us pre-internet post-internet the generation that grew up with the internet really aware of the workings of the world in a way that we weren't informed and I feel that that that's just going to get sharper and sharper and hopefully as education spreads uh, so does the idea of not being caged into these sort of set menus. India is a conundrum. What What is Indian culture? Can anyone talk about it? Like, we don't know. It's just so many things. That's the tragedy. In fact, uh, Janice, I was asking Janicea this because you also have a kid who's significantly younger, whose conscious years have been like 
the last six years, right, of this country's yeah. life. I mean, yeah. even the culture that is now happening in elite, so-called elite public schools of this country, it's all becoming very, very narrow. So actually, somebody who's 19 or 20 today has had perhaps yeah. a more open yeah. childhood than maybe children who are right now you know six seven yeah, eight absolutely. nine quite terrifying because there was a certain openness with which even I although I didn't um, have a services background you know I didn't grow up with that kind of diversity but still there was a certain permissiveness and openness when I was growing up that I see like today's 10 year olds don't have it you know absolutely. it's a little bit scary. The thing is my kid's not in school in India and she's not old enough and also I graduated in 98, so I have very limited knowledge of, of what's actually going on. You only read about it. And it's it's quite right. scary. And it's possible that it's destroying a whole generation. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking back what I, I said two minutes ago, which is that, you know, the next generation might be able to, you know, and, and future generations will be able to fix it. Maybe not if, if we don't fix the shape of of the country and its governance. And I also feel that it's not just India. I feel like it's it's a movement all over the world, which is why there needs to be a wider understanding. I don't know how that comes through. Again, you know, it's just, it's what are you willing to consume and and, and inform? It's, it's, it's just, honestly, it's a scary time to be alive because there's no one method of getting information, right? Like in the 80s, we had Doordarshan and we had news and we yeah. had one channel. Then yeah. when we got cable, we had like six channels. And even then, it was pretty simple, streamlined. Now you have a million different ways of getting your information and you can get the information you want to believe in. It's a very confusing time. So I think it comes back down to going back to looking at everything that you think you know, kind of examining it. I think it's also a lot of like informing yourself, like reading. It's not just through social media. I think everyone needs to understand facts and consume them more. Because what's happening is that everyone's consuming headlines and Instagram stories or Facebook posts. How many kids above 18 are actually reading serious articles? They're very few. It comes down to uh, a generation above, like parents encouraging kids to really dig deep. Perhaps the lesson in this is for all of us to know this about ourselves and also if we have kids to teach this to our kids that the world is not just your bubble and nope. you will have to, you know, kind of like break through that bubble and go out and explore and not be afraid. I mean, I live in the national capital and there are so many different kinds of people across, you know, class divides and caste divides. Yeah. And of course, cultural and religious divides. Yeah. And yet we are all living in such bubbles that I wouldn't know what life is like five kilometers down the no. road in a basti. I'm not saying that I have to go out, go and live in that basti necessarily, but I need to know that my life is my bubble and there are other kinds of lives and cultures out there. And I just really feel afraid for anybody who is growing up in a bubble thinking that's their whole you know life. We don't know what our kids are being taught, man. Like, when I say our kids, I mean, like, generationally, like, kids in Nagpur. Or... Purnima works with kids. I work the free library project. So we're trying to build free public access libraries across Delhi. And wow. we definitely want to, like, help other free libraries across India. Their shelves are full of those same books that you're saying. You know, that people need to read. That's another way to live many lives without any, like, cost to you. And... I'm just curious, like, how are these kids accessing the information that they get via different sources and what's going on? Is there like a cultural thing going on? What are they thinking? Because we work with kids as young as four years old, our main work is that we present a multitude of reading material and we help people grow into thinking readers. So don't just look at the text, but learn to think deeply and meaningfully about the text. Now, beyond that, we don't control the content that kids are reading but we present so much diversity of content and we also help with thinking strategies all good readers employ certain thinking tra uh, strategies and then as you grow older that's what transforms you into an intellectual yeah. so we focus on that but outside of that we don't control what people are reading and what happens within that space because thinking in a library becomes a community thinking space right it becomes a collective thinking space yeah so we have a multitude of ideas that kind of 
come up against each other and the rule in the library is that you can have different ideas but we're all going to sit in a circle and discuss them uh, respectfully so oh, you may have very controversial ideas but there'll also be somebody else in the same circle who is going to challenge you and you better be able to uphold your argument you know with uh, a rational approach so that really works well even today our members like everybody in the country they have like very very different points of view but what happens is that every point of view is challenged even my point of view is challenged in the library and i have to be able to be in that circle and uh, say why yeah yeah defend my position that is the key because what our library teaches us at a young age is basically that, that there are all kinds of people just sitting next to you in the circle so you yeah. better be able to hold on to your position but also be open to what the other people are thinking i love it for india that's a great idea i don't have any solutions i think i had it very easy easy for me to accept adapt and move as quickly as i could whenever i wanted i find that to be a place of privilege i have been privileged my whole life because of that and so i have very few solutions for anybody seeking to do this primarily because i haven't had to try for it all i can say is that it's easy if you're light on your feet and in your head yeah. you know, willing to accept things people ideas cultures more than you would otherwise allow yourself to be yeah i think that's it that's perfect thank you that's a really nice way to end also absolutely So Juhi's life does seem like the idealized version of what can happen. Her mm-hmm. privilege as she says is to have been raised with such an open-minded way and very accepting of all assimilations required and stuff. And you know there are advantages and perceived losses of being multicultural. You will lose some things. I don't know what would be seen as a sort of terrible loss. But I do feel by and large the gains outweigh the losses long term. And if you look at culture now versus where it's come from historically you know 100 years 200 years millennia it's actually just moving parts and it's going to change so her experience is ideal but i think we can all grab little bits of it maybe absolutely and what i actually liked about everything that she said and i was really listening closely because it's such a vastly different experience from my own yeah. is that yes the privilege afforded her all of those opportunities and she took those journeys but it's also how she used that and yeah. to have your feet firmly planted on the ground allows you to be really open so she talks about being a self aware pretty early in life and really knowing this is you know who she is fundamentally of course you keep growing and that knowing of herself allowed her to then you know as she said in the interview let go and for me the most beautiful part of talking to her was that letting go you know is not about losing your place in the world you can have your place in the world and also let the world in and that's the key i think you know to to the multicultural debate yeah i think that despite the fact that i think we are naturally open to multiculturalism and it's very much in our constitution and our history and wherever we have thrived it's because we've been open minded suddenly we are putting barriers up to our ability to understand each other and to even experience each other's lives the, recently the supreme court said that intercaste marriages can reduce caste tensions in society and they want to like police be sensitized on with all these horrendous rules about you know conversion actually it's true you see that in big cities right a lot of people who get married and have children their caste identities not get diluted mm. and the children are raised in much more open minded homes because they don't have that weight on them they're not being indoctrinated in their identity at that time and i think that can only be good and when you said that you went to school and you know everyone was more or less the same socio economic status more or less the same religion that also happens because of ghettoization and now we have been allowing ghettoization to happen like in my neighborhood it was pretty much equal all religions and cultures and also socio economic statuses represented so my school here in bombay mm-hmm. the lady who swept the corridors her kid was in my class and people were sensitized already increasingly i feel that if you have vegetarian only societies i mean i know the parsis have their bags for example but i think that's also a thing about cultural identity i think unless you are an extreme minority or you have had great trauma in your cultural history 
history you should just be chilled out about it like you don't need to be protected and celebrated you need to protect and celebrate people who have been damaged by this cultural imposition no i know that it feels like that right now but i think we've always had these barriers to multiculturalism going back like centuries you know so the ghettoization is now more on news and on social media and on twitter there are long threads about it but of course we've always had it we've always had opposition to marriages and we've always had the majority or not even the majority actually the powerful minority squeezing everybody else into ghettos and i think we weren't aware of it because of this overriding narrative that we needed to have in the beginning of our life as a nation where you know this unity and diversity myth and i want to talk about the dangers of pushing a forced narrative of multiculturalism to gloss over the really hard realities that have existed in this country and also to invisibilize identities when you go on and on about unity and diversity unity and diversity beyond a point you're not listening to somebody who wants to talk about their marginalization or you're yeah. or you're not ready to include their culture into the mainstream so on the one hand these forced narratives of multiculturalism they give us an excuse to never really engage with those who express their individuality or unique culture under this garb of assimilation which is basically homogenization you know it's not assimilation and on the other hand it just creates this pressure cooker sort of situation where actual fascists and supremacists feel like they have been uh, victimized or they're getting a raw deal you know under this whole unity is the diversity thing which went on for like generations right for decades in our country um i think it just created so much angst with the supremacists because they felt like they were being squashed when actually they weren't and we've seen this of course in the united states where that pressure cooker moment came with the election of trump correct uh, the fact that he got elected was a pressure cooker moment and then the subsequent resurgence of white supremacy and of course obviously we are seeing that pressure cooker moment in india's in recent years so to me the claims of india being multicultural right now is kind of you know it's like that macho testosterone pumped dude bro who's like i want to marry an educated girl who has got <laughs> good job she should be earning good monies but also she has to looks after my children she has to looks after my kitchen she has to looks after my mummy papa so it's a it you know like progressive oh because it suits you and regressive because it suits you it's not genuine multiculturalism so i mean i was kind of looking for examples in my own experience of a successful multicultural environment and i really did have to turn back to my library training and going back to that international federation website where hmm. they have a whole page on what it means to offer multicultural services within the library space yeah. and i don't know a lot of it just came at me in, in a way and i want to repeat some of that over here so they describe multicultural library services to include both the provision of multicultural information to all kinds of library users so yeah. you should have the knowledge of different kinds of people who are inhabiting this space and owning the space and they also define multicultural services as the provision of library services specifically targeted to traditionally underserved groups this to me is just key and there's another section of library services for multicultural populations okay. which specifically addresses the information needs of i'm calling it information needs because that's what libraries do but you know extrapolate it but the information needs of ethnic linguistic and cultural minorities in order to ensure every member of a library community has access to its services yeah. and what strikes me as the core of multiculturalism in this library discourse is the extra effort one has to make to accommodate traditionally underserved groups the idea is not to expect someone who's already marginalized to dissolve their identities even more to assimilate with the majority or the powerful but the onus is on the powerful and those who have been served adequately in the past to make special room for those who have been traditionally underserved and that's what makes for multiculturalism not the other way around if you are a predominantly xyz country then everybody has to be xyz they are a and b and c they have to leave the abc behind and become the xyz that's what is being sold to us as multicultural 
that's that, wrong. That, and also your cultural identity, if you've noticed, you know, where there's been education, where, you know, the community has been well-placed, where there's not been much mass migration, especially economic migration and stuff like that. Their cultural identities are very strong. Whereas the less privileged communities, they don't even have these records. They don't know what they were like. They don't know what their families were like because nobody wrote diaries. A lot of them, when they converted, they may have been animist. They may have been Hindu. What your cultural identity is becomes very, very fraught. So I think that is definitely the responsibility of people who are directing this kind of a service, whether it's in yeah. the library or in the government. You know, you have to protect mother languages, their stories and all of that. One size fits all multiculturalism is not really multiculturalism. That's bullshit. You know, countries that have had lots of immigration from different cultures, they've also had to wrestle with this very meaningfully. And their processes have been up for scrutiny from the rest of the world. So there's this uh, professor of international politics. His name is Basam Thibi. He's from Damascus and he wrote a book mm. called Europe with No Identity. So there are two th- strains of thought. There is the leading culture, multiculturalism, and there's the melting pot culturalism, all right? And in this Europe with No Identity, he suggests that the different communities within a country should definitely have their own identities and those should be celebrated. But they have to support the core concepts of a culture on which the society to which they have moved is based. The idea being that the leading culture of that society was the architect of the situation and makes it easier for new cultures to thrive. Mm. Get mm. it? And I agree with this, okay, that the core cultural concepts, now these, some of these are very Western concepts like separation of church and state, the idea of democracy. Then right. constantly striving to enlighten and to add nuance to civil society, like say via critical thinkings, for example. Man, this sounds good to me. Like, so yeah, I'll go. I'll go and do all of this. Then go home. I'll make my sort of and eat quietly at home. <laughs> you know, yeah. like everyone wants to know. And I just think that that is a one very, of course, everything only works idealistically. This con- this entire podcast is not meant to solve any problems. It's just you and I <laughs> trying to evolve our own ideas. Also, we really don't like the smell of susu in jail. So we try to avoid jail susu smells. So we no, worked really hard on this episode. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the US has the melting pot uh, policy, which is that immigrants are from, you know, they're totally wild and crazily different backgrounds. They're just thrown together and they are supposed to mix and the state kind of puts its hands up in the air as it does very often and there's no acknowledgement of any common ideals or leading culture nothing like that it's like wherever you are whoever you are whatever you're doing now you're american okay all right Mm -hmm. and that's supposed to inspire change and you know evolution you know supposed to intermingle and all it doesn't always happen and then you've got caste system in silicon valley and also in this kind of dangerous thing the leading culture becomes money Mm. so if you want to take this a little bit forward like there's another word it's intercultural and intercultural means communities in which there's a deep understanding and respect for all the neighboring cultures they interact with the conversations are open like there's an exchange of ideas there's an exchange of cultural norms there is gentle criticism on each side imagine that purnima imagine imagine a life like that what happens is then you develop very deep relationships and this kind of society everyone changes everyone says my culture is not static it is growing because it is bouncing off all the other cultures i live alongside and my God, that gives me goosebumps. You know what I'm saying? That's where I want to live. <laughs> An intercultural world. <laughs> I, I want to go to there. As Tina <laughs> would say, I want to go to there. <laughs> yep. Bitches can dream. Thursday Bitches is a fortnightly podcast presented and produced by Junisia Alves and Purnima Rao. Podcasting advice and support from the good people of Audiomatic. All views expressed are personal, very personal.